of your sanctification last week and this week. Remember, it produces steadfastness, perseverance, and patience. (laughs) I'm going to drop this. I am on. If you have your Bibles, please. John 7. Gospel of John, chapter 7. We're going to read, then I'll pray, and then we'll talk about Scripture. Sounds like a plan? I hear the Word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the for fear of the Jews no one spoke openly of him about the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching the Jews therefore marveled saying how is it that this man has learning he has never studied so Jesus answered them my teaching is not mine but his who sent me If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Let us pray. Father God, we covet the truth of Scripture, which is the food for our souls. We covet the forgiveness of our sin, the correcting of our shortcomings. We long to behold Your glory in would be awesome if you would show up, Lord. Because without you, all of our feeble efforts are in vain. 
But if you are present in guiding them, it's a glorious thing. We behold you and worship you and we are transformed by the beauty of your glory. So let us behold it. Let us behold it as we depend utterly on you to worship you this morning and be happy and content and satisfied in the beauty of your Son. And it is in his name, for his sake, that we pray and thank you. Amen. Today we start a section of Scripture, a new section, chapters 7 and 8, where the conflict between Jesus and the authorities, the Jewish leadership, will intensify. The conflict will be even more intense now. Jesus has managed to offend both his opponents and even his own disciples. In chapter 5, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And after that, he claimed to be the Son of God. He called God his Father. And because of that, the Jews sought to kill him. Because he was not only healing on the Sabbath, but he was calling God his Father. Making himself equal to God. In chapter 6, he had a crowd. He had an audience of maybe close to 20,000 people there to listen to him. And he drove them away with his teaching. He claimed to be the bread of life, the only hope of lost humanity. And he said that in many clear ways. And they got offended. And many of his disciples left him. In the next two chapters, we will come across... In chapters 7 and 8, we will come across 11 references to death threats and attempts to arrest Him. Two chapters of Scripture that are not very giddy. Not much to joke about. Not much to laugh about. Before we go any further, let me call... I, I want to call your attention to a couple of words that are present in our text today. And I want to call your attention once again to the way in which Jesus and the Apostle John are using these words. The first of them is the Jews. Please, when you hear John saying that the Jews wanted to kill him, please do not think that this is an anti-Semitic reference. It's not a racist, discriminating remark. John uses this word referring to the Jews, to the national leadership of Israel, to the religious leadership that is imposed by these guys that know the law, that write the law, that make a living of teaching the law. They are the Jewish authorities. John is not referring to the whole Jewish people when he says the Jews. When he refers to the people, he says just that. The people. That's how he calls the people. You can see that, that contrast or that distinction in verses 11 through 13 of the text we read today. I'm going to read it so we, we can just um, memorize it. it. Verse 11. The Jews were looking, looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? The Jews were looking for him and now the people have different opinions. 
there was much muttering about him among the people. Here you see the distinction between the Jews and the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. So the people have different opinions. It seems like the Jews or the leadership were pretty much unified on their opinion. Even though they hadn't gone official on it. They're pretty much unified. Most of them hate him. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one, or no one of the people, spoke openly of him. So it's not a racist remark. It's not a discriminating comment. It's just the way that John refers to the Jewish leaders. He himself, the apostle himself, is a Jewish guy. He's a Jewish man. The other word I want uh, to call your attention to is the word or the term, the world. In the way that Jesus is using it, all he means is this system of thoughts, system of thought and practice that stands in direct opposition to the, plan, to the person, plan, and purpose of God. In other words, this man at his best. Mankind's sinful rebellion against the glory of God, against the person of God. That's the world, the world in the way Jesus is using it. And by the way, this in the mouth of the apostle, in this gospel, this is the, the major way in which the word, the world, is used. To sinful humanity. Sinful humanity is mainly what it means in the gospel of John Now let's go, verse 1. We're going to move slowly through this text. Verse 1 says that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Why? He wouldn't go to Judea. Because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. It doesn't take long before we realize that Jesus includes the Jews, the national leadership, in the world. They, these guys that they claim to know God and to teach the Word of God and to be the mouthpiece of God, in Jesus' words, they are part of the world. They stand in opposition to everything God stands for. They seek their own glory. Take a look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The world hates him, these guys are trying to kill him. The Jews are seeking to kill him. Do you think they hate him? Just like the world. Because they are in the world. Because they are of the world, I should say. They hate Jesus. They are part of this system of thought and works and practices that hates Jesus. And at this point, wants to kill Jesus. He has just said once again that these guys don't know God. He questioned their salvation and their relationship with God. He declares that they are enemies of God. And not only that, he includes his own brothers in the whole thing too. He includes his own brothers in this term, the world. He includes them in that as well. The world cannot hate you. That's the statement he makes to his brothers. When he says, the world hates me because I testify 
that its works are evil. He is implying that you don't testify that its works are evil. You are fine in the world. And he has just said that the world, the world cannot hate you. The world loves its own. Right? The reason why they hate Jesus is that Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil. How does he do that? Does he curse the darkness? No, he sheds light in it. The disciples of Christ are not to go about cursing the darkness. To hate the world with our, with our words. Christ didn't do that. Christ shed light into the darkness. Light came into the world. John 3, right? Light came into the world and the world hated the light because it testifies that its works are evil. John 15, 19, this very same gospel says this, If you were, Jesus is talking, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Jesus' own brothers, they're so close to Jesus, but they don't know who He is. And they are loved by the world, and they love the world because they're not of Him. Now, lest we think that they are saying, go and show yourself to the world, let's do this. You are the Messiah, we believe you. John makes sure that he makes a statement, a comment on what's happening here. In verse 5, he will say, not even his brothers believed in him. Now, didn't they believe? They were saying, let's go. If you do all these things, let's go up to Judea. All the Jews are there. The world is there. Let's go and show yourself. Be acclaimed. Get the glory. You need to be recognized as the Messiah. That is, in part, it's true. He is the Messiah and he needs to be acclaimed. And he is. But he says that it's not his time yet. What they want is to go and get the glory of man. That's what they want. Let's go, brother. Let's go up to Judea. Everybody is there. They will see your miracles. Some of them are seeking to kill you. Your disciples left you in chapter 6. They walked away. Let's go get that following back. Let's go be famous. They need to know you. Show yourself to the world. If you want to be known openly, you have to go there. But this is just one more evidence that they are of the world. I mean, why in the world would they think that Jesus wants to be known openly? What has Jesus ever done for, they, for them to conclude that Jesus wants to be a rock star? I mean, in chapter 2, he was being acclaimed, and the Bible says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew what was in the heart of men. So Jesus just walks away. He's not interested in loveless praise, in lip service. So Jesus just walked away. Here in chapter 6, Jesus has an audience of maybe close to 20,000 people. They're all there listening to them. He feeds them and then he goes ahead and claims to be the bread of life, to be humanity's only hope. Lost man, only hope. What happens? He says that in many clear ways throughout the chapter. And those are hard words. 
everybody leaves him. He's clearly not concerned with how many Facebook friends he has. He's not looking for that kind of fame. He's not interested in the show thing. He is about the glory of God. He's not seeking the glory of men. He is relentless and passionate about the glory of His Father. Now, if we can go back to talking about verse 1, which is where we are. Is Jesus a coward? He's not going there because he doesn't want to be killed. So what's going on in his mind? Is he, is he behaving this way because he stuck his foot in his mouth one too many times? So now he's regretting it. Now he's in trouble. Oh no, I spoke too much again. Now I'm in trouble. I've got to hide. Is he a coward? Is the captain of your salvation a coward? Is he less of a man than many other in church history that faced all kinds of opposition and even went to their death because they would not give up the truth. They would not recant. It's clear that he is not a coward. He has been calling them out, the leadership of the Jews. He has been calling them out relentlessly for a while now. And he knows he's going to end up getting killed. He answers that question in verse 6 when he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. It's not time for him to die yet because he is on a schedule. He's not just doing things flippantly. He is on a schedule and he gets his marching orders from his father. He's not living flippantly, but he lives in the direction of the Holy Spirit in his life. He's living in the way that we should live, pursuing God's guidance at every minute. And he knows that his father hasn't told him, go die yet, go get killed yet. So this is why he's not going yet to Judea. He doesn't want to die yet. Why? Because he's on a schedule. He has to die on Passover. As the only and true and ultimate Lamb of God. Shedding his blood. For all of us who trust in him. So that the wrath of God will pass over us. And not land on us, because it landed on him. He absorbed the wrath of God for his people. In Genesis, when, and in Exodus, I should say, when uh, God tells them to paint, paint the doorpost with the blood of the Lamb, that blood had no significant redeeming value. That blood did not save them. That blood was, that act was done by God to point to somebody else. To point to the one and only true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who would shed His blood and definitely save us. He has to die but not in this feast. 
Not in the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is just such an easier word for me to say than boots. Uh, so from now on, from now on, it will be Tabernacles. I don't care if you have the ESV, okay? It is the same. It's just a different name. He's not supposed to die then. He's supposed to die a little bit later. So he says he doesn't want to go. His brothers, they want the signs. They want the miracles. They're no different than the crowd in chapter 6 that love the miracles but cannot see the real man. They cannot see the real identity of the one who is behind the miracles. They, can't, they, they see the outward expression of power, but they do not see the glory of God standing right behind the miracle. The soul, the love of this God-man performing the miracles. The passion for His Father's glory in doing the miracles. The only hope that we have is the bread of life. Is the true greatest prophet. He is greater than Moses. That's the whole gist of these two chapters now. He reveals Himself as a mouthpiece of God, as a true prophet, which is an office of the Messiah. But he shows himself to be much more than a mere, than, than a mere prophet or than only a prophet. But they're not interested in that. They're not interested in the whole repentance talk and pursue holiness, be about the glory of God. No, no. His brothers, what they believe? Of course they believe. You know, John says, not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't believe savingly. What they want, you know what they believed? They believed in all you can eat, bread and fish. That's what they believed. They believed in, oh, he heals people and he feeds them. They believe in, in, in these miracles, this magic show. Oh yeah, go, go there and show yourself. Let's go get glory, let's be famous. And on top of that, I mean, he, he might have the power to liberate them through a revolution or something. Because the miracles he performs, they're the real deal. So let's go and show yourself to the world. Let's go get all that glory. That's not what Jesus is interested in. You see, the Christian life is not about external. It's not, ultimately, it's not about outward, external expressions of power. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is about true faith in the real Jesus. True faith in the real Jesus. His brothers had none of it. They didn't have true faith, nor they had the real Jesus. They didn't have true faith. Because what did they want? The glory of man. They wanted to be acclaimed. They wanted to go to Jerusalem and show themselves. And show that, you know, that's my brother. On top of the whole thing, it's like, that's my brother. It was a trip growing up with him. You know, I, I knew he would make it. You know how, you might have run into these people that they know a celebrity and they, they keep acting as if, like they brag about knowing the celebrity. You know, it's almost like they are the celebrity and that's all they talk about, you know. It's like the same thing. Wouldn't it be awesome to, to be, you know, the little brothers of the one who's going to liberate Israel from the oppression of the Romans? Like I said, they're not interested in, in the glory of God, but the glory of men. In John 5.44... What does Jesus say about pursuing the glory of men? He will affirm that it is virtually impossible to believe, to have faith, or to be saved, 
if you are about the glory of man. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, to, to the Jewish leadership. And this is what he says. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's a rhetorical question. How can you believe? If you turn, if you turn that into an, uh, uh, an affirmation, into a statement, he's saying you cannot believe because you are about your own glory. You seek your own glory. You speak in your own authority, which is what he goes on to restate in the text we're in. That's what you're looking for, your glory. Therefore, you cannot believe. True faith seeks the glory of God. It's not about you, ultimately. It's not about your glory, but it's about a relentless pursuit pursuit of God's glory. Now, they didn't have the real Jesus either. The Jesus they thought they had, it was a molded Jesus. A, a Jesus that they molded into their own image. A Jesus that, according to them, wanted to be known openly. Wanted to regain the following. Show himself to the disciples that had left him. That's the Jesus they wanted. The, the liberating Messiah who was going to perform miracles and do great things and be famous. That wasn't the real Jesus. And there are so many Jesuses out there. Who is he? That is a question that can change your eternal address, your eternal destination. Your eternal destination depends on that question. Fake Jesus doesn't save. You need the real Jesus. We'll talk more about this. They thought Jesus was a mere miracle worker. He was much more than this. They were of the world. And, I mean, they believed Jesus did miracles. But that's about all that they believed. Did they believe that Jesus was the unique Son of God? the Savior of the world, the judge of all earth, the author of life, did they believe that Jesus was man's only comfort in life and death? Oh, no, 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 no. He's our older brother. No, hold on. He's not God. He's just our older brother. They wanted Jesus for their earthly concerns, their earth, earthly physical needs, temporal needs, temporal fulfillment. Isn't that a danger for all of us? Turn Jesus into a means for our earthly comfort. Treat Jesus as if He's not the end of all things, but He's just a means for our own ends. We only want Jesus because He can provide us with a more comfortable life. He can give us the toys we so much covet. He can get me off drugs or alcohol or heal my marriage. Those are all good things. But ultimately, that's not the redemption Jesus came to provide. 
that's a part of it, and he may grant you and will pray for it because he does, he does perform miracles. He does feed people. He does break the chains. But he's much more than this. They had fake faith in a distorted Jesus. That's what they had. Now, we face the same danger. You know, we get so wrapped up in, in our earthly concerns and discomforts that we want Jesus. We make Jesus. We might not say it that way because we are Christians, but we make Jesus our only hope for this life only. We all give Him lip service, but really the way we live, we're not concerned about eternity. We're not concerned about His glory. We're not concerned about other people's eternal welfare. And the fact that they don't know Jesus, that you are a minister of reconciliation called by Jesus to be an ambassador to the world. No, but it's much more about us. This is, this is a danger that we face daily. Now, if in Christ we find hope only for this life, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, according to the Apostle Paul, if in Christ we find hope only for this life, we are, of all people, the most to be pitied. The definition of the word pathetic is worthy, worthy of pity. Paul has just told us that if we find ourselves in this situation where Jesus is the hope only for this life, we are pathetic. It's a pathetic state of your soul. If what you do is to, God help us to make Jesus a means to our sinful ends. Jesus is not a means of anything. Jesus is the end of all things. We are created to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We are created for Him. From Him to Him, through Him. Back unto Him are all things. There is not one square inch in the whole universe that He cannot say, Mine. It's all ultimately about Him. And God help us if we love the glory of man more than we love His. And if we are about our glory, earthly glory, earthly pleasures, in comforts, then we are about His glory. God help us. God have mercy on us. Now, do you think, isn't it, isn't it ironic that there are many, many sections of the Christian faith, I believe there are many, many dear brothers and sisters, and yes, I also believe that there are wolves preaching that doctrine but there is a, a section, a branch of Christianity that is all about the so-called victorious life. How you are the sons and daughters of the king. You deserve the Rolls Royce. You deserve the mansion. You deserve to never have to balance your checkbook because you have tons of money. They tell you you have the power to create your own reality. Faith is a, a force. and you, By <clears throat> the way you manipulate that force, you will 
create your reality. Words contain that force called faith. And if you control that, you get to have a lot. I mean, to the parking spot you get at the mall, to the mansion and private jet, and, and it is set. I mean, it's just curious to me that those preaching the doctrine, they all have all that stuff. But, I mean, the churches aren't filled with billionaires for whatever reason. And they are doing, what they are doing in the end is making Jesus a means to get the beamer, a means to have hope in this life only. They're all concerned about this life. The victorious life. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it's a pathetic state of our souls. I'm not saying this to hate on them. I just find it to be true. And it breaks my heart to know that there are brothers and sisters that are redeemed by the blood of Christ that find themselves trapped in such a false teaching. It's not a victimless crime. People are suffering. You know why? Because life is not a, a, a sea of roses. There are a lot of thorns in life. And when divorce is knocking at your door, when your husband or wife goes out and, and, and has an affair on you, your world crumbles because the first thought you have is, and you believe that doctrine, the first thought you have is, I didn't have enough faith. This is my fault. When a loved one died after you prayed for him or her, this has to be your faith, that, the faith that you lacked because you prayed for him and he wasn't healed. Now he died. This is clearly my fault. Maybe I'm not even saved. Do you see what that does to people? Do you think it's harmful to people if that happens? Do you see the importance of knowing the real Jesus and knowing what real faith is? It's not a matter of theologians in, in the ivory tower of you know, the academics in the universities. This is real. The rubber meets the road. And it is going to impact the way you live. It's going to impact your faith, the way you relate with Jesus. Now, enough with that. That was, that was a parenthesis. Now, did Jesus, when he said, I'm not going to, to Jerusalem, I'm not going to, to Judea, you guys go, I ain't going, okay? Because they want to kill me, I'm going to lay low over here. Is he deceiving them? Because this is a week-long festival, and he does go midway. I don't know, maybe showed up at like Wednesday or something. He does go, but he has just said, I'm going. You guys go alone. So he dispatches his unbelieving brothers, and then in the end, he ends up going. I don't think he was deceiving his brothers, because the word is clear that he didn't lie. He didn't sin. He knew no sin. But one thing I do know is that if you want to be sensitive and submissive to the Holy Spirit, your life takes 
many unexpected turns. If you want to be sensitive to what God is telling you, sometimes you look at all of the evidence, you pray, you seek the Lord, and you, you think you make the best decision, you make it a decision, and then God tells you, gives you different marching orders be it in the way he relates to you, in, in peace, you know, brother counseling, and in the scriptures, obviously. But the orders you had yesterday are not the same marching orders you have today. I, I truly believe that Jesus got new marching orders. I truly believe he did. He dispatched his unbelieving brothers, and the Father said, now you go. And he submits to the Lord. Because that's all he did. He lived a life of dependence on his father. Utter dependence and faith and delight on his father. So he goes. I mean, I, I have an example. Right now, my wife and I are living through these different marching orders. A few months ago, we, we got word of something that happened. It involved people. It involved hurt people, malicious things that had happened. And we are kind of caught in the middle of it. We had to make a decision. Um, making no decision was in and of itself a decision. There was no way for us to be impartial. So we, we made a decision on, on how we should act, how we thought God would be glorified in it. And uh, lo and behold, less than a month ago, we got new marching orders. And we're faced with a new decision. And this is real thing. This, I mean, this is real. This in, involves people. People in the faith, people outside of the faith, and we're in the middle of it. And both of us are, are because of new developments, things that happen, we, we are convinced that we got new marching orders. And God help us, we're, we're changing uh, our previous decision. And hopefully we're right and God is going to be glorified in the decision we made or He's going to show us new marching orders. I didn't say that, you know. But if you want to be, if you want to be submissive and sensitive to the Lord's work, to the Lord's word, your life takes unexpected turns. So He goes up to the feast, right? He goes there and uh, what does He do? Does He start making a big noise about Himself, you know, and calling people to follow Him? trying to be known openly? No. He gets there and what does he do? Does he perform miracles to be known by everybody? No. He gets there and he starts teaching. Just like in chapter 6, the miracles were done as a stage, as just a setup for him to reveal who he is, for God to reveal his glory to the people. After the miracle in chapter 6, he claims to be the bread from heaven, the bread of life, our only hope, right? Now he gets there, and what does he do? He starts teaching. It's all about the teaching. It's all about revealing his glory, his nature, and, and character to the people. It's always about this. It's never about a magic show and, and a pursuit of man's glory. He teaches, and as usual, People hear the voice of God. I mean, he teaches. Remember that when he taught in another instance, the people said, "We have never heard anybody preaching like this." I mean, when you guys, when you guys preach, when you guys teach us, you know, when you guys talk about the commentators and what they think of the theologians and never gets to scripture, you know, Jesus teaches with 
power. Jesus teaches with authority. And again, once again, he taught so powerfully that even his opposition, in verse 15, they marveled. I mean, this guy, he's a carpenter. He's never gone to college. He doesn't have a PhD like we do. He doesn't even have a BA. There is no known rabbi that claims him as a student. He's not learned. He's a peasant Galilean. And he knows all this stuff. Where's verse 15? The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And Jesus once again, he will say, My father tells me these things. Verse 16, let's read it. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Do you get the depth of this statement? What am I teaching? I'm not making up stuff. I'm not reading your rabbinic teachings, your rabbinic traditions. I'm not commenting on the commentators. I'm not quoting like a parrot what the theologians think of the rabbinic teachings. No, these words come straight from God. Can you hear me? This is the voice of God. When I speak, God is speaking. That my teaching, I'm not making up stuff, shooting from the hips as I go. This is what my Father teaches. My words are the words of God. This is, like I said, the gist of these two chapters. Jesus Christ revealing Himself as the mouthpiece of God. He's revealing Himself as a greater Moses. Moses said, a prophet like me will come in Deuteronomy 18.15. He's fulfilling that office of the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. He's fulfilling that, revealing himself as a prophet. But he's much more than that. He will say, my words are the words of God. When you try to kill me, you are trying to kill the one who is the mouthpiece of God, the one who is sent by God. When you hate me, in essence, you're hating God. And you do hate me. Therefore, you hate God. You who claim to be God's people, to be God's, uh, uh, the people that represents God. You guys, you are not of God. In fact, you hate Him. It's a big deal. It's a deep statement. Profound statement and it is true God help us if we think we know God and in reality we stand in opposition to him God help us if that is true in any stage of our lives Jesus says my father he tells me these things now verses 17 and 18 we're about to wrap it up Okay, we'll just spend a few more minutes. Verse 17 and 18. I'm going to read them and I'm going to try to explain them. After claiming to be the mouthpiece of God, he'll say, verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true. And in Him there is no falsehood. 
Just so you know, they will go on to say that he has a demon. Because he's saying these things. He's saying that they want to kill him. But um, we'll get there next week. Now, this is the truth about our hearts. If your heart is hardened to the glory of God, or if your heart is about the pursuit of your glory, of the glory of men, of praise and acceptance from sinful men, from men, your heart, it's not about the glory of God, right? Your heart is hardened towards it. If that is your heart, the nature and character of Jesus and the works of Jesus, they're just foolish to you. It's, you mean I don't get to do my own things? Like when Jesus says, you know, my time has not yet come, but yours is always, is at any time? It means you don't serve God with your time. You're not submissive or, or sensitive to God's time and to God's direction. You can go and you can come and go whenever you please. You're not of God, you're of the world. But Jesus is about the glory of God. So what does he do? He pursues, he pursues the glory of God. If your heart is hardened to the glory of God, this pursuit of the glory of God is just stupid. It's just foolish. If anything, let's say the Holy Spirit is starting to do a work in your heart. If anything, you look at the character of Jesus and his pursuit of glory, and you realize that you are pursuit of the glory of God, and you realize that true faith will make you behave and desire that, behave like that and desire that, that's terrifying. Many people, when they first come to faith, the first thing is, now I have to give up all that stuff? Sometimes it's hindrance to faith. To faith. I have to stop doing all those, all those things? I have to... You know, and then they find it themselves to which they, they are not to be instead of the delight that there is in what they are to be. Am I making sense at all? My blabbing. Okay, good. Um, so if your heart is hardened, you're not about His glory. And therefore, when you look at Jesus' pursuit of glory and you think that you have to behave that way, it's either stupid or terrifying if you are in the process of coming to faith. If Jesus is becoming real to you, it's just terrifying because... I don't want to give up all that stuff. All that talk about picking up my cross, you know, leaving mother and father, you know, and die to self daily, deny yourself daily, it's terrifying. But if, if you are about the glory of God, let's say Jesus becomes real to you, then His pursuit of the glory of the Father is not, it's not stupid, nor terrifying. But it's all you want. Jesus comes alive to you. And you start seeing Him for what He truly is. You start seeing Him as truth incarnate. As the truth, the way, and the life. And His words are not terrifying. His words now are sweet. They're not only true, but now they're sweet to you. And they transform you. And they comfort you. And that is your desire, to glorify Him, to pursue His glory, because that's where you find your pleasure. That's where contentment is. That's where you find your happiness. His words are sweet to such a heart. Which one is yours? What are you looking for? I don't know. His words become, you know, what He, what he uh, says. 
we believe, and what He commands, we obey. Jesus Christ in this chapter has just told you that His words are the words of God for your life. Does, does His word, does His marching, uh, do His marching orders for you? Do you even hear them? Do they hold that place of supremacy in your life? This is a very practical fact. You see the consequences. John C. He seems to have a pattern of showing Jesus' work and then showing people's reaction to his work and claims. Then Jesus does another work, makes some new claims, and then people's reaction. There seems to be a pattern. Jesus again today told you, I am the mouthpiece of God. I am not only the mouthpiece of God. I am the God who speaks. Are you making Him? Do you ever catch yourself making Him a means for, for your own agenda? Those are real questions. Who is your Jesus? Is He the true bread of life? Who gives you eternal life? And no matter what happens in this life, even if you don't have all the toys, no matter what happens in this life, He is enough. You know that in Him you will be eternally happy. Is there an eternal perspective in your life? This is where you find eternal perspective. Not in circumstances, but in the words of this Jesus. So let us sing. Let us worship Him with our music, with our songs. And let's beg Him to have our hearts engaged in this worship, not only as we sing, but as we go about in a very dark world, but as we go about seeking His own glory, His glory, and not ours, because in it we find eternal contentment. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for... You, you, you are just so kind in revealing your Son's glory to us. I thank you for this morning, for the assembly of the saints. And um, I thank you for your presence. Please, I ask that you would, um, would cause us to sing with all our might. All our might. Please, have our hearts engaged in the words that we are saying, singing. And let, our, let not our hearts disengage from worship. Let worship be all of our life, all of our days, all of our decisions. Let it be worship. Let us have Jesus in a place of supremacy. Let us truly accept Him as our treasure, as really all we got. Our only hope in life and death. We pray all these things. Yes, because it is what we desire, but ultimately for the fame of your name. In his name we pray. Amen.